Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The first guest of the evening is truly a poet. He's an artist. He is a friend and an inspiration to anyone who I think who has ever played the guitar or tried to write poetry. Would you please welcome Gordon Lightfoot. I live in the light of the bright silver moon. I'll take you off sailing from midnight till noon. I'll show you the sea of tranquility. You can have any flavor you happen to see. This is Carefree Highway Revisited, the show that celebrates the work of Gordon Lightfoot one song at a time, a proud member of the That's Not Canon podcast network. I'm your host, Mike Messner, and along with me today is a fellow Lightfoot fan from Chester, Georgia, Donnie Screws. Donnie, welcome to the show. Thank you so much and glad to be here, Michael. Well, it's great to have you here. How did you first get into Gordon Lightfoot's music? As a very young kid in the mid-60s, we heard about Lightfoot. You know, he was still mostly a Canadian phenomenon then, I think. But uh, reading the magazines as a young kid, you know, his name came up. And then around 1970, when I was really beginning to pay attention to music, I was like 12 or 13 years old, this late night DJ played a song on the radio and it just drew you in the narrative, the songwriting, the guitars, and it, it, you just went into it, and it was called Talking in Your Sleep. And I never knew who that was until years later. I thought, man, that is a great, great song. And then later, of course, you had If You Could Read My Mind, which was the great popularizing thing. And then uh, Sundown, of course. And my band at the time, I was playing with an outlaw country band that was you know, quite popular in the Southeast. And we decided we were going to cover Sundown. And I went to the music store to find it, and I couldn't find the Sundown album, but I did find Gord's Gold. I said, well, this is a two-record set. I don't know if I want to get all this just to get one song, but I bought it. I put it on the stereo, and I thought, oh, my goodness, this is great, great songwriting. This is well-crafted music. You know, being a, a young drummer in the early to mid-70s, I was a jazz fusion freak, like uh, Billy Cobham and all that, uh, Mahavishnu. But this was a whole different world of music. It was so organic and beautiful and so well-crafted. And I just dived into Gord's Gold and became just a diehard fan. That's fantastic. And I think a lot of people really did. They didn't necessarily know what they were getting when they bought the double album. And then they realized they have just a treasure trove of great yes. music there. It, yeah, that's, that's a good description. It is a treasure trove, Gord's Gold. And those re-recordings are so good. You know, the United Artists stuff, you know, he re-recorded them at, I guess, it with Warner Brothers. And to me, those recordings are so much warmer and bigger and they sound great. Well, they're certainly more elaborate and I don't think that detracts from them at all. And warm is a good way of describing them because they really do have a sort of intimacy because of the production that maybe the original recordings didn't have. What would you say you like about Lightfoot's music in general? 
first of all, great songwriting. He actually puts great thought into every part of the music. You know, a lot of people write songs and they have three chords and some lyrics and that's it. And they don't put a lot of thought into arrangements. I like well-crafted pop songs, rock songs, whatever, jazz, whatever. As long as it's well-crafted and thought goes into it, intelligence goes into it, depth and feeling. And of course, you know, Lightfoot has all of that. And uh, his music is just the whole thing. Plus, Barry Keane, the drummer. You know, I was a Billy Cobham jazz freak, Danny Serafin with Chicago. But then I learned so much as a drummer and as a total musician from Barry Keane. His parts are just genius. Now, that's <laughs> something I was going to get into a little bit later. But, you know, we might as well talk about it now. I did a show, for example, with Lee McCormick a couple of weeks ago, who's a drummer up in the Ontario area of Canada. And he said that Barry Keene was sort of trying to take a page from Jim Gordon's drumming book. Now, I'm not a drummer, and I've never played the two guys back to back in terms of their style, but I'm wondering if you would agree that there's an overlap or an influence between what Jim Gordon did in the sessions and what Barry Keene does in performance and in sort of the later records. Yeah, I'm a big Jim Gordon fan too. As a music freak and a musician, if you bought albums all through the 60s and 70s, you saw Jim Gordon's name on just about everything, you know, from Wichita Lineman all the way up through Derek and the Dominoes, you know, that great album with Delaney and Bonnie and Friends on tour with Eric Clapton. That is a great, great album. And he played on, you know, when he came to Warner Brothers, of course, they brought in Jim Gordon. That's before Gord decided to have a full-time drummer, you know, when he brought Barry in. But to me, I think they probably, Jim Gordon and Barry King probably approached the music in a similar way. I don't know if Barry needed the influence of Jim Gordon, but of course, with Jim Gordon's history, everybody was influenced by him, you know, so that could have been there. It is very possible simply because Jim Gordon was there first and right. Jim Gordon being a session guy who, like you said, was really ubiquitous all over, played with Eric Clapton. I think he got a writing credit for Layla played with Delaney and Bonnie, played with Joan Baez. I mean, just all over the place. So that right. would make sense. Donnie, how many times have you seen Lightfoot in concert? And what was the most outstanding performance that you've seen? I've tried to think about that. It's between five and eight times. You know, we're down here in rural South Georgia. So, uh, you know, Lightfoot don't get down here very much. N not many people. I was talking to Terry Clements one time and Terry was poking fun at us. He said, we're down here in the Chitlin circuit down here with you guys. You know, <laughs> the most outstanding to me might have been the first performance at Chastain Park in Atlanta. It was the first time I saw Gord and he came out. This was before his aneurysm. And this was around the time of Gord's Gold Volume 2, where he re-recorded a lot of that. And there was one original song on there that wasn't on any of the other albums called If It Should Please You. And it's a pretty good song. And Gord came out and actually started with that song, If It Should Please You. At the time, my seats weren't the best. We were up in Chastain Park, up, in, up on the side. It was a medium-sized amphitheater. And uh, Gord came out and started playing. And I was like, wait a minute, is he playing? I can't hardly hear him. And we got everybody calmed down, you know, the crowd quieted down and then we could hear what he was doing. And it was a great performance. And I remember in the middle of that, Gord broke a string on his guitar in the middle of it. 
And instead of switching guitars, he sat down and changed the string while he talked to the audience right in front of everybody. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah. That is hilarious. I mean, how many artists would take that time or have that much nerve to do that in the middle of a show and keep the audience's attention? I think that just speaks volumes about him. Oh, yeah. And, you know, Lightfoot is really big about tuning. He spends a lot of time tuning backstage. So, you know, he, he got the string back on, he talked to the audience the whole time and then they got going again. And it was, it was a great performance. It was the first time. And uh, I had brought a friend, I had been telling a friend about Lightfoot's music and how well arranged and performed it was. And we were all very impressed. Now you talked about Chastain Park in Atlanta, and I've never been to that particular auditorium, although I've been to Atlanta a couple of times. Can you say a little bit more about what that venue is like? You said it's a medium-sized amphitheater. What's the capacity of it? It wasn't that big. I've seen Gordon in larger places. It's actually a fairly small, and at the time, I'm not sure if it's covered now, but at the time it was open. I mean, it was open to the sky. It was totally outdoors. There were tables down in the front, and I was in the seats up there. And it's just kind of like a medium thing. And Gord was performing outside. And it was just a great performance there. All the other times I've seen Gord, I think it's been inside like Symphony Hall and uh, Macon City Auditorium and all that, which was really great because he actually came down to Macon, Georgia, which was amazing. Of course, I've seen him in Savannah and uh, other places like that. Have you ever met Gord? Yes, several times. The first time I met him was at the Chastain Park concert. I was lucky and blessed and honored to be able to go backstage. And Barry Keene, Rick, all the guys were just fabulous. Terry Clements was hilarious. All of them were great. Gord was very, very friendly, very nice. And uh, I had written them a note, you know, and he read it. He mentioned that to me. And I, I had written a note to Barry and told him what a huge influence he was on me. They all were very appreciative of, of that. Now, the most amazing thing to me about meeting and talking to Gord, I've done it many times, was one time it may have been at Symphony Hall in Atlanta. I'm not sure which venue. We were backstage when we were talking and I talked to Barry and Rick and Michael and Terry and all them, talked to Gord a little bit. And then I decided, well, there's a lot of people back here and they're doing a little meet and greet. So I kind of walked over to the side and just kind of stood there. I wanted to just take in the whole backstage experience there. And I was just standing there looking and all of a sudden Gord walked over to me. He said, Hey, Donnie. And I said, well, well, Hey Gord. And he said, you are Donnie, right? I said, yeah, yeah. And I was so flabbergasted. I don't know if I made any sense at all, you know, after that, you know, I've spoken to him several times, but we got into a conversation about him going down to the rainforest with sting uh, on that environmental excursion they did. It was just an amazing thing that he re came over to me and reached out and uh, we talked for a little while. That is so cool because Lightfoot has always been a very down-to-earth kind of guy, somebody who really appreciates his fans, has never taken them for granted. And he could have chosen not to do that in that backstage setting. But I think it, again, says a lot about the kind of man that he is. Absolutely. I was just amazed because, you know, most people wouldn't do that. You know, I've played a lot of shows with my band and we've been backstage with some artists that were just too good to talk to everybody, you know, but Gord and his band are nothing like that. They act like they're glad to be there too. And it's really wild for an artist of that stature. He is a legend. He is just amazing. Uh, his body of work and his stature in the industry for him to be like that. So humble. Yeah. And he could choose to be above it all. And he chooses not to do that. And, you know, God love him for it. 
one time I was talking to him and uh, I think I was standing beside him and people were just coming up. And I said, Gordon, you ever get tired of all this? And he said, no, this is what we do. And that is what he does. And, you know, it's all about people. It's not about money or fame or glamour. It really comes down to people and about relationship. He's kept that in mind all these years. And again, more power to him. Well, today we're talking about Sea of Tranquility, and that's from the Dream Street Rose album in 1980. And when I listened to this, I thought to myself, this is another song that comes from his real appreciation of nature, of the wilderness. And we've seen that in other songs that he's done. Redwood Hill, which I've talked about here. Christian Island, another one I've talked about here. And that's what I really like about it. And it's obviously very heartfelt. This is not something he wrote just to slap something together and put it onto an album because it was actually, I think, the first track on the Dream Street Rose album. Why did you want to talk about it, Donnie? Well, I think it may be my favorite song of all from Gord. You know, I had Gord's Gold and I had gotten the Summertime Dream, you know, which was probably the most melodic of all, in my opinion. I was just amazed. And I saw um, Dream Street Rose in a local record store for a long time. And I thought, do I get it? Do I buy this? Finally, I broke down and got it. And boy, am I glad I did, because that album is a treasure house of great playing and great arrangements. And that first song, uh, Sea of Tranquility, it starts off with the guitar strumming. It's an acoustic guitar, but it's so powerful. I mean, it's so strong. And then you hear the high guitar. You know, I think Terry Clements or somebody's playing arpeggios there. And he sings, I live in the light of the bright silver moon. And then he goes into it. And I've been a nature freak, birder, environmentalist, science teacher, canoe, kayaker, hiker, collector all my life. All of his songs about nature speak to me. You know, it it just means so much. Gord's nature tunes are awesome. You know, whispers of the north and all that. But Sea of Tranquility, not only the lyrics, not only what it's about, but also that brilliant arrangement and the way these guys play. And we can get into that. Barry Keane's drumming on this. I'm a drummer. I played every kind of music, jazz, everything. This is how drums are played. Well, he comes in playing a regular thing. And we were talking about the song being in three, four. You know, it's all multiples of three. I always thought about it being in six, eight. But you're probably right. It's, it's a fast three, four. But when Barry comes in with those flams at 125, Oh my goodness. That just brings urgency to the music. It's dramatic excitement, a sense of danger. Those Tom Flams that he plays that just lifted me up out of my seat. I said, Oh my God, this is how drums are played. He's playing the music. He's playing for the song. He's not just showing off in essence. That is the best way to show off when you're showing off and it's really polished and it's really sensitive which is the way that he plays. And it's the same sort of sense of drama that I got when I first listened to the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald, when the drums came in at just the right time during the narrative. And it does add an emotional aspect to the song that if it was just him playing one acoustic guitar, you wouldn't have. I mean, that would be more of a nursery rhyme than anything else. But this really adds a theatrical sensibility and of course there's a a rock sensibility to it we'll be right back to our conversation with lee screws about sea of tranquility but first a word from one of our podcast partners hello my name is sandro and my name's zach 
We are historians. Well, movie historians, we're not qualified for anything else. Join us on our podcast, Oldie But A Goodie, where for all of 2022, we're reviewing movies from the year 2001. That's right. Every episode, we look at all the movies that came out that week back in 2001. Then we pick one film and we do a full synopsis review. It's it's Oldie But A Goodie. Sometimes, m- most of the time, we find bad movies. It's usually a fun time, but also usually one of us ends up pulling our hair out by the end of the episode. And we have a lot of hair between. Between us. What a selling point for the trailer. <laughs> yeah, I thought it was pretty exciting. Oldie but a goodie. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, that's not kind of productions podcast. For me, I would want to listen to this in the early morning. Now, that is consistent with, you know, early morning music, which was the title of his publishing company for so long. But I would want to listen to it a little after sunrise, not at sunrise, but I can see myself listening to this sort of in the latter half of the sailing journey that he says, because I'll take you sailing from midnight to noon. So I would want to hear it, I don't know, between six and seven in the morning. That would be my ideal time. I don't know if I'd have a place where I'd want to listen to it, but that would be the time when I'm watching the sun as it's cleared the horizon and it's starting up. Is there a particular setting, time, and place that you would think this is the perfect time for me to listen to this song? What you said is great. Yeah, that would be great. To me, this song demands that you hear it on a really good stereo so that you can hear everything going on in this song. So you can hear the drama and the excitement and the danger in the song. There's so much going on there. It's really simple, but there's a lot going on there. And to me, a good stereo where you can feel the power of it and the power of nature that they're singing about. Yeah, that's something I hadn't thought of. And the stereo where I live is really kind of a Frankenstein affair. And probably when I retire, I'll invest some money in having a really, really good stereo system. But I agree, this is not something you could get out of the typical sound system. You couldn't get it from an iPod. You couldn't get it from a car stereo. I mean, this is something you really have to have good equipment to really appreciate. The only commentary that I could find on it was that Lightfoot had said, believe it or not, it's about the nocturnal wildlife in the forests close to my home. And I don't have any other angles on that. But when he said that, I thought to myself, well, of course it is. Why wouldn't we believe that? Because we know where he lives and we know the environment there and we know that he grew up near this body of water where you could go sailing from midnight to noon and you could see all this different wildlife do you have any other ideas about how the song got written no i didn't discuss it with gord any but you're right and i think gord was kind of having a laugh when somebody asked him about that you know everything in the song all the lyrics is about all the nocturnal wildlife and he was saying, believe it or not, it's about nocturnal wildlife. <laughs> you know, it's, it's really obvious there what it's about. So I think he was kind of giggling inside when he said that. Uh, okay, so he's being a little facetious about it. Yeah, yeah, because they said, sea of tranquility and all this stuff. I live in the light of the bright silver moon. And he goes into all these descriptions of wildlife and animals and things. And then they said, what is it about? Well, it's about the wildlife, you know, it's about the nocturnal wildlife. Now, a lot of his songs do have hidden meanings and other things like Nile Rogers said, the deep hidden meaning. But this one is pretty straightforward. Now, there is some very poetic passages, you know, I'll take you off sailing from midnight to noon. 
and you can have any flavor you happen to see. That's taken a lot of poetic license there. And not only are you observing the wildlife, but you're thinking deeply and philosophically about it as well. Yeah. And that's a great jumping off point for us to talk about the lyrics. I live in the light of the bright silver moon. I'll take you off sailing from midnight till noon. And right away, he's saying, this is about the nocturnal wildlife where I live. I'll show you the sea of tranquility. You can have any flavor you happen to see. So poetic license, I'm thinking flavors, what does that have to do with anything? I live in the shade of a forest of green in the wildest of woodlands that you've ever seen. So this is a pristine area. People don't live in it. If they do come to it, it's not very often. And they live in the shade, which means they're probably sensitive to light in some way. Now, Donnie, have you been to this area of Canada? Can you testify that this is what it's like? No, I haven't. I've read about it and researched it a lot. And that's it's on my list. I'm just retired from teaching science for 40 years. And uh, Canada and that area is on my list of places to go to. I've spent a lot of time, like I said, in the swamps. I'm, I'm down here in South Georgia, so we're basically swamps. And I've spent a lot of time way up in the swamps. And uh, like an old swamper friend of mine, down here, you don't say swamp, you say swamp, you know. <laughs> but it's a, it's a forest of green and it's wildest of woodlands. You know, there's, there's a lot there. We have alligators, we have ospreys and eagles and all that down here too, especially in those areas. So... I can relate to it, but I haven't been there. My sister just got back from Canada and I'm jealous, but it's definitely on my list to go there. Well, I'm having spent some time in South Georgia also on the western part of the state, just across the line from Dothan, Alabama, I can appreciate the kind of landscape you're talking about, but I've never been to that part of Canada either. There's rabbits and quail and tender young snails as brown as the seaweed on old rusty nails. And when I thought of that, this is nice poetry, but I think it also has a meaning to it where, where are you going to find seaweed on rusty nails? Well, at the bottom of some body of water where there's a wrecked ship. And maybe there's a subconscious way of saying that nature can't be tamed. The seaweed is living on, but the nails, the thing that's representing what man has made, those things have turned to rust. Am I reading too much into this or not? No, those are some great lyrics. And it's a descriptive thing. You know, when, you, when you're describing something, when you're talking about something brown, you can just say, well, it's brown. But he's talking about as brown as the seaweed on old rusty nails. Now, that is very, very descriptive. And there's a lot of the sea thing, the mar maritime thing in his music. So that's just a fantastic description of the color that he's singing about. Yeah, and... I think on that same record, he had the ghosts of Cape Horn, which I'm going to be talking about next season with a guest of mine. There's fireflies dancing in the cool evening breeze. There's love and romance and as nice as you please. And of course, when I was thinking of this, how often do you have in pop songs the idea of animals being in love. And the one that I immediately thought of, and I have no idea whether this compares or not, Muskrat Love, which was done by the Captain and Tennille. And then my personal favorite is the, the version that America did of it sometime in the 1970s. Did that occur to you when you ever listened to this? Muskrat Love <laughs> didn't occur to me when I was thinking about Sea of Tranquility. But he's talking about love and romance. And there's a time with all the animals mating season comes along 
And, you know, where they're rough and tough and they fight each other and chase each other off. But during mating season, all of a sudden, ooh, they're friendly to each other. You know, the cardinals are feeding sunflower seeds to the female cardinals, you know. And all of a sudden, you know, they're loving romancing for a little while, you know, and getting ready to lay eggs or raise babies or give birth. So there's love and romancing during a time there. And I think that's what he's referring to. Yeah. And he's not doing the same kind of personification that the writers of Muskrat Love did. It's a lot more authentic because talking, you're talking about mating season. There's otters and frogs and spotted groundhogs and wily old weasels in rotted out logs. Well, that's accurate because otters do live in every province in Canada. So do groundhogs. Weasels do indeed live in stumps or in hollow trees or in places they've taken over from other animals. So it shows that it's not just poetry. Lightfoot has seen this. He's thought it about a little bit. I mean, he knows what he's talking about. And maybe he's done some scientific research on it, too. I don't know. But there's accuracy to this. This is not just poetry. Right. Yeah. He has great descriptions and then little poetic flourishes there along with it, you know. So uh, it's, it's great descriptions of the wildlife there. It makes you want to go up there and see all this, you know. Oh, absolutely. But it's only to see it through more dimensions, not to say, well, I'm going to go see if this is really the way it is. I see the song as a work of art describing the majesty of nature and doing it beautifully. We'll be right back to our conversation with Lee Screws about Sea of Tranquility. But first, a word from one of our podcast partners. The world at war. Two lives in the balance. Who will live to see another day? The leader of the free world or a man falsely accused of treason? In this new dramatic audio series, A Date with Death. Helen Meeker has to make that choice, and time is running out. Assigned to exposing an espionage ring operating on American and British soil, Helen must outwit bank robbers, avoid booby traps, and even have dinner with a dead man. When the date with death is over, who's picking up the check? Ace Collins' best-selling World War II novella, A Date with Death, comes to life in this production by the Long Highway Players. Available on Acast and coming soon to a podcast feed near you, A Date with Death is a proud member of the That's Not Canon podcast network. There's rivers of rainbow and gray mountain trout and little dark holes where the varmints hang out. It's interesting because Ontario is not known for a whole lot of places to go fly fishing. There's places to go fishing all over Canada, of course, but it's interesting that he chose that because most fly fishermen, from what I know, would not go to that part of Ontario to go fly fishing. They might go out in the lake or they may fish from the shore, but they wouldn't necessarily go fly fishing there. Varmints. Now, this is an interesting one. I always think of varmint as one of those sort of colloquialisms that we hear in cartoons Is there an actual definition of the term varmint? You know, that's a good question. I'm not sure. Down here, we've always thought of varmint as some kind of animal that's a wild animal and kind of gets in the way and all this kind of thing down here. But I hadn't thought about it like that. Um, Little dark holes where the varmints hang out. It's just he's describing all the animals, small animals, big animals, all the animals that are there. 
And that's just part of them. And the rivers of rainbow and gray mountain trout, you know, instead of the fishing reference, I think about it just being a natural place where these fish live naturally. They're animals too, and they're fascinating animals and they have a role in the ecosystem. And that's the way I see it. You know, this is where these, these fish really occur. This is where they live. So he's not bringing in the idea of, hey, while we're here on this cruise, let's stop and go fishing. He's just keeping this narrative of describing the ecosystem. Yeah, I think at the beginning, he says, I'll take you off sailing from midnight to noon. And I think about cruising through the forest, almost like you're airborne and seeing all this. Instead of trying to stop and catch it or fish it or hunt it or kill it, you're cruising through, you're breezing through, flying through, observing everything that's going on, which is what I love to do when I go kayaking and go to the swamps. Everybody asks me, do you hunt? Well, I hunt, but I don't kill. You know, I don't have any reason to. But anyway, I'm there to see what's there and observe it and see what I can learn from it. And I think that's what this song is about. You're cruising through, you're flying through, and you're observing all this wild stuff there. So it's a tour. It's not an expedition. Kind of. Yeah, that's the way I see it. There's foxes and hares in traps and in snares. Now, we're not going hunting, but I guess we can't get away from that aspect of life because they're in traps and in snares and lots of bald eagles. So you better take care. So there is some hunting going on, both the predator and prey that would happen in any natural system, but also there's some human incursion on all of this. Otherwise you wouldn't have foxes and hares in traps and in snares, right? Right. Yeah. He does refer to the fact that humans are in there and having an effect. Yeah. And bald eagles do swoop in and take animals from those traps sometimes, although most bald eagles, I mean, their diet is mostly fish. And I did a little bit of checking on this and you might know better than I about this. Okay. But bald eagles, they're between 10 and 15 pounds. They're 28 to 38 inches high and their wingspan can be as much as eight feet. And that is, to my way of thinking, I mean, that is a very intimidating creature. And so when he's saying, you better take care, it sounds like what he's saying is they may not be after you, but they may run into you. And if you disrespect them, they're going to try to scare you off. Now, I don't know anything about the behavior of bald eagles. Can you give me a, a fact check on that? Well, I see it, you know, there's lots of bald eagles, so you better take care and all that. It's just part of the poetry of the song to me. I've never really thought about being afraid of a bald eagle. They are very, very large. They are majestic and they are imposing and I've seen them, but it's part of the narrative of the song, you know, the, the uh, pure nature wild. I mean, this stuff is wild. So you better take care. You don't know what may happen. You get too close to a nest with an owl or an eagle or a hawk, you may be attacked. Even down here, even mockingbirds will attack you if you get close to their nest, you know, and you do not want to get attacked by a bald eagle with those talons that big. So, yeah, that's a great poetic line there about, you know, you better take care with uh, birds of this size and this power. And I think you probably encapsulated a lot better than I did. So if you've got the time and you'd like to pass by, and again, this is idea of passing by, cruising through, come down all right midnight and give us a try. 
because midnight is when you're likely or the wee hours of the morning is when you're most likely to see all this stuff actually happening. You're not going to see it in the heat of the afternoon. We'll show you the sea of tranquility. You can have any flavor you happen to see. So it's not a particularly long song, but it's got so much lyrical depth to it. And I think that's probably the reason that you liked it and a lot of people also liked it and why he probably put it first on that record. Yeah, when you just the title itself is so evocative. The Sea of Tranquility, that is a flat area of magma on the moon, you know, where we landed in 1969. But the just the term, the, the name Sea of Tranquility, it evokes so much in the imagination. And you can have any flavor you happen to see. You know, with my band, I talk about, hey, guys, play this. Let's add these colors to this music. And we're not coloring with crayons. We're coloring with sounds. And here, you know, you can have any flavor. You're talking about all the, the rich variety of things that are there. It goes so deep, the wildlife. You know, we talked a little bit before about the drumming that Barry Keane did on that. Wanted to revisit the musical aspects of the song. Is the drumming your favorite musical aspect of Sea of Tranquility? I like all of it. The drumming thing really made me sit up and pay attention because Barry can do it. Barry can play anything. But what he was doing, he was playing the song. Instead of playing a lot of fast single stroke rolls or things like that, he was playing those big, powerful, majestic flams that just made your hair stand up. You know, it brought the drama to the song. But there's also other things. You know, you hear Pee Wee, Ed Ringwald, you know, that steel, when they're playing those instrumental sections, the sustained chords that the steel and Michael's keyboards are doing. I like to turn it all the way up and just let that just flow through my body. All of that. Meanwhile, the acoustic guitar, Gord Strumming, he's got that this fast, like you said, three, four, six, eight thing going. So the rhythm is there. And they're floating all around that, adding these flavors and colors and powerful aspects to the music. It's just a majestic, magnificent song in every way, instrumentally as well as lyric. Yeah. And you mentioned the fact that it's in waltz time, which to me is my favorite part of this, only because it's such a neat break from a lot of the stuff that we got in the late 70s and the early 80s, which was in 4-4 or 2-4 or some heavy metal band would try to be innovative and say, we're going to play in 1-4 time. You know, it's not that impressive Mm -hmm. to me. But the people who played on this, it's really the same core of everybody that was playing with Lightfoot through the mid to late 70s. Terry, Rick, Pee Wee, Barry, and then Michael O'Martian, I hope I got that right, who played piano and keyboards. And he's done a lot of different work in a lot of different genres, particularly in the Christian music area. He's played and arranged for a lot of different people. The other thing that I thought was interesting about this record and this song is that it's one of the very first albums that was recorded digitally. Now, this came out in 1980, which implies to me that at least some of it was written and recorded in 79. Did you notice a difference between the analog music that was recorded earlier and the digital that came out on this record? There is a difference in sound. I've never analyzed it a lot, but I noticed everything was really crystal clear and a a little more trebly, but there's a lot of depth with the bass, you know, and the lower instruments. But yeah, I saw that on the album, you know, that it was recorded digital. I thought about that and I thought, well, this is really wild, you know, that this happened this way because this music is usually so organic. 
warm and organic. But this album is a great, great album, and it's recorded very, very well. I haven't really noticed a huge difference with the digital thing there, but I know it is there. Everything is so clean, you know, in there. Yeah, and I think the nice thing about this particular record, because I've heard digital music that was so seamless almost to be contrived. There was no spontaneity to it at all. But this makes up for Mm. the spontaneity with the majesticism, the way it evokes things, almost a cinematic song in a lot of ways. And I would think that they could have made a really, really good video out of this that would have been meaningful as opposed to just, you know, something you'd see on MTV at Headbangers Ball. Or yeah. something like that. It would have been a lot more meaningful. It is a very visual song. Right. Yeah. And he's played it from what I could tell about 332 times in concert. Interestingly enough, he has not played it in the last 12 years. He first played it in Edwardsville, Illinois at the Mississippi River Festival that was in July of 1976. And he probably figured that, hey, people are here to see me because I'm promoting Summertime Dream. So he probably thought, hey, I think I'll sing a new song. I've kind of got a captive audience here, so why not? And then the most recently, he played it just up the road from me in April of 2018 at the San Francisco Palace of Fine Arts. If he has played this on the current tour, I can't find it. He played it twice in the 70s, nine times in the 80s, 67 times in the 90s, 138 times in the 2000s, and 115 times in the 2010s, and he hasn't played it so far this decade. We'll be right back to our conversation with Lee Screws about Sea of Tranquility. But first, a word from one of our podcast partners. Welcome to Books Boys. Every month, Dean and PJ tell you all about the books they've been reading and make some recommendations from our old favorites, plus surprise call-ins from authors to talk about the works that they're writing, original music, prize giveaways, and more. That's Books Boys on BooksBoys.com and all good podcatchers. Books Boys. Get it. Buy it. Books. Did he play it in any concert that you've seen, Donnie? Yes. I got so excited. (laughs) I got so excited when they started it. You know, I turned to my wife and said, they're doing Sea of Tranquility. But there's another thing that happened. uh, And I'm not sure who was doing the lights at the time. Uh, I don't know if Richard Harrison was still with him then. But anyway, when they started, I believe it was Symphony Hall in Atlanta. And he went into that rhythm on the guitar. And I immediately knew what he was doing. And when Terry came in on the arpeggios, the high arpeggios, I said, oh, my God, they're doing Sea of Tranquility. And the people behind me were like, shh, shh, you know. This is what was really wild. I've thought about this song played live so many times. You you know, as a musician, you in your imagination, you think, what if I was up there playing it live? And I thought about when that first high, you know, that first high ping, ding, and then you hear the bass, boom. I thought about behind them, you know, when they go ding, all of a sudden have stars to show up. And then when Rick comes in with that big bass note, boom, a big full moon appearing behind them. They did that. They didn't do the stars, but when Rick hit that bass note, a big full moon appeared behind them. 
man, I got so excited. I about jumped out of my seat. I said, I, I thought about this. I thought about this, you know, and, I told, and of course the people were saying, shh. I did see him play it another time and they didn't do that with the lights or the effects, but that was really exciting when I saw that. And you know, when I heard that note, I thought that had to have been Terry doing some sort of high harmonic, or maybe Rick was doing a high harmonic on the bass, and then he would come in with a boom, and yeah. then you'd see the moon come out. I would have liked to see the stars too, but I love the fact that he added that little piece of theater into the show, you know, the way that you've described it. So that's right. fantastic. The, the next time I saw him, I don't think they did that, but that first time, oh, it, it was fantastic. Well, the song was not released as a single. The album did do okay. It went to 76 in Australia. It was number one on the Canadian country charts, nine on the Canadian pop charts, 58 on the U.S. country charts, and 60 on the U.S. Billboard 200. This is when Lightfoot was not quite as much in vogue, and there are reasons we can talk about that another time if anybody wants to, but it showed that he had a certain amount of staying power in the late 70s and into the early 80s. Speaking to one who was listening to him actively and on a contemporary basis at that time, Donnie, did you think that this was an improvement over the Endless Wire stuff? Do you think this was just a return to form? How would you rate this in the context of what was going on with his music? A lot of people do that. I love the Endless Wire. Endless Wire, to me, it seemed to be very electric and I really loved it too. I mean, it seemed to be more electric uh, departure from the usual real acoustic stuff. Of course, there was a lot of acoustic things on there. And then this seemed to be a little more acoustic, but it had a lot of electric flourishes, but I haven't really compared it to the other albums. You know, there were some changes going, of course, he did Shadows, he did Endless Wire, Dream Street Rose, and then he went into uh, East of Midnight and all that. But all of those are just treasures you know and, and a lot of times we didn't appreciate them at the time for what they were they're all so good each album from lightfoot like you said is a treasure trove you can dive in there's no filler every song is awesome so i didn't really compare it that way i just like it i like the arrangements i like the thought that goes into it you know i think the point that i was making is that you have sundown which is an absolute intergalactic smash and then you got summertime dream which was another intergalactic smash and then endless wire the critics didn't really like that quite as much and to be fair i don't know how you possibly live up to summertime dream and sundown but a lot of people thought that the endless wire record was a little bit of a step back for lightfoot now i love as you say i loved the record and i love all of his records um i was just talking about the critical response to it right right yeah you know people that aren't fans like us but you know uh, uh, an artist with staying power an artist that's doing this as a career and his career is creating works of art you release a lot of stuff and not everything is going to be a worldwide smash, you know, but you're still staying the course and you're producing great music. You're producing great art. And uh, some people are going to get it. Some people won't get it. Some will be more popular than others, but it's all good. And somebody said, you know, don't judge how good music is by its chart position. You know, there's a lot of really bad music that's made it to number one. Oh, you know? yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah I mean, let's face it. 
a lot of that is kind of cynical that people, you know, will produce stuff. Well, you know, the kids will like this, so we're going to put it out there and we'll make money, money, money. And on a business level, if you think about it, Lightfoot was still producing fantastic songs. And on a business level, they were good enough so that his label didn't drop him. So that may be an indication, not the only one, but because what you said, if you're creating art, some people are going to get it and some aren't. But if his label had dropped him, that would indicate something else. Yeah. And a lot of times labels, especially big labels like Columbia and Warner Brothers, it's not how good you are. It's not how great the records are. It's how much it sells. You know, yeah. now on a positive note, Warner Brothers and uh, Asylum and Columbia are known for nurturing their artists and keeping them. Now, these days in modern days, you know, 2022, no, if you don't have a hit from the get go, you're dropped. But back then, to their credit, they held on to their artists and nurtured them. And sometimes you had albums that sold a lot. Sometimes you had some that didn't sell a lot. But you were putting out a quality product along the way. Yeah. And I think the thing that has changed so much, I mean, the music industry has changed. So it's almost unrecognizable from what it was, you know, when Lightfoot was, you know, at the peak of his career. But the thing that I have intuited is that the people who are running the music industry these days, I mean, they're lawyers and accountants. I mean, they don't really necessarily have a clue about what good music is. They're looking at balance sheets. Right. And that's a sad commentary, but that's the game that is being played right now. Right. Yeah. You're absolutely right about that. It is sad. There are no professional or official covers of this that I can find. Personally, I think it's an underappreciated gem, and I think more people should have heard it and added their own twists to it. Why do you think no one has covered the song, Donnie? You brought up a good point about that. I've never thought about anybody else covering this song. I guess Lightfoot and his band did it so well. That's something that I, I've never thought about. But you said Neil Young or possibly R.E.M., and I think that's great. You know, that, that would be good. It would need to be a band with a big sound, a lot of big acoustic and a lot of power, you know, to do that, to evoke the feelings and the message of the song. So, yeah. You know, I, we're talking about who we would like to have record this. And I did think of Neil Young and I thought of R.E.M. And then as we're sitting here, there were two other people that I'd love to hear cover this. And then if you had any other ideas, I'd love you to throw those out. One would have been Stan Rogers. Uh hmm. Canadian and Alaskan folk singer who's since passed away, but he had a really deep, you know, sort of vos profundo thing. Uh -huh. And I think he could have added something to this. And then yeah. I would like to hear this also done with an Irish accent. Uh -huh. um, I think the Clancy brothers or Tommy Makem, if they were still around and recording, I think they could put a nice spin on this. Is this something the Lee Jessup band could have covered? Probably not that song. The Lee Jessup band back in the day, we were we were like a cross between Waylon Jennings and the Allman Brothers band. <laughs> you know, a lot of improvisation, uh, outlaw country, that kind of thing. Sundown would have been more of a thing that we would have done. You know, that fit the image that we had. You know, we were the bad boys of music down here in South Georgia during that time. Probably more Sundown than anything else. And what I just thought of what you were saying a while ago, things like Sea of Tranquility and people covering it and all that. Since the internet came along and we've been in touch with so many other Lightfoot fans, I've been delighted to find out that so many people appreciate these hidden gems in the albums like Sea of Tranquility, Whisper My Name, The Watchman's Gone and things like that. I found that, that other people, hey, you know, I'm not the only one that thinks this is great. 
So, you know, you made me think about that. Well, that's one of the reasons that I enjoy doing the show, because we're looking into these songs that the casual Lightfoot fan might not know, but then the people who will listen to the whole album didn't just buy the singles would be able to talk about and say the impact that it's had on their own lives because you know his music certainly had an impact on your life and my life and that's one of the reasons that i do this donnie you're a musician yourself you've alluded to that a couple of times and we've also alluded to the lee jessup band you're still performing and so i'd love it if you could just say a little bit about your current outfit what you're doing where you're doing it and the kind of music that y'all perform yeah, yeah. Like you said, I started with Lee Jessup Band. I was like 18 years old, started with Lee Jessup Band. And we uh, we were, you know, we had a great, great, great time. We did three albums. We played venues all over. We actually were lucky and honored to play the White House for Jimmy Carter in 1980. I've been in other bands. I've been in soul bands. We had a blues band, Americana bands. One of the bands I was in, the Medicine Men, we were acoustic Americana. And I thought, we need to do a Gordon Lightfoot song. And I stayed on them and stayed on them. And finally, my other bands became so busy that I had to leave. It was actually a live radio show we did. They did the way I feel after I left. <laughs> I thought, my gosh, they, they waited till after I left to do that. But anyway, I've played all the music, you know, we've played blues, jazz, rock and roll, outlaw country, improvisational music. And I've written songs. I wrote the title song from our third album, The Jessup Band. And I've been in bands where we played the obscure stuff, where we played the cool stuff, you know. And now I'm 64 years old and I'm having a ball. I've got my own band. We're called the Midlife Chryslers. And we're like a cross between Fleetwood Mac and the B-52s. You know, Tom Petty, Lady Gaga, Aretha Franklin, ZZ Top. And we travel the Southeast and mostly Georgia, but the Southeast, South Carolina, Florida, and we play fun dance music and we play coastal areas where people just have a good time. And uh, I'm retired from teaching. So it's a joyful life to be able to play music and make people happy. It sounds like you are just having a blast. And anybody who's listening in that region, please do check out the, is it the Georgia Midlife Chryslers? Is that right? Yeah, it's that's such a silly name. Sometimes I'm embarrassed. Tell about, I didn't come up with that name, by the way. This <laughs> player, Doc, came up with that. But it's a silly name. But uh, yeah, online, you can find facebook.com slash Georgia Midlife Chryslers. And you'll see us with all the pictures in our schedule where we're playing. You can find us there. Also, my Facebook page where I do a lot of corresponding is facebook.com slash GA Drummer, Georgia Drummer. So Georgia Midlife Chryslers or GA Drummer. That's where I can be found. Donnie, as we're wrapping up here, if you could have a say over Gord's set list the next time he was playing in your neck of the woods, what would you want him to play as the opening song of his first set? The first one I would say is The Watchman's Gone, but I've seen him do that. He actually started with it one time, and boy, yeah, that was great. Another one, and this is a song he never does, because he says it doesn't hold together technically on stage. And I can understand that knowing how the song goes. The summer side of life, I would like to see that, you know, those opening chords and going in and the melody, the soaring melody there and the meaning of it and the way the band plays so well behind him there. I'd like to see summer side of life. But, you know, like you said, he doesn't play that very much because he said it doesn't hold together technically on stage. Uh, another one would be got to get away, you know, from salute, you know, that with those guitars, you know, the funky guitars. He does well with what he does. He comes on one concert as, as far as beginning. He closed a concert in front of a whole 
auditorium, a large auditorium, a, a packed auditorium. He closed the show with Song for a Winter's Night, which is a very gentle, loving, romantic song. You know, you would think you'd go out with a big blast, but he just brought the house down with that song. You know, so it's just amazing. But yeah, Summerside of Life, Gotta Get Away, The Watchman's Gone would be my choice from the beginning. Well, Donnie, this has been a lot of fun. It's great to talk to someone who not only appreciates the music as a listener, but also as someone who has played it and has had some experience in the music business. So thank you so much for your time today, and I'd love to have you back on the show again soon. Thank you so much, Michael. It's been a blast. I enjoyed it. And thanks for listening, everybody. If you like this well enough to listen to the whole thing, tell somebody about it. Carefree Highway Revisited is on Apple, Spotify, Acast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Our website is www.lightfootpodcast.com, and our Patreon page is www.patreon.com slash carefreehighwayrevisited. You can reach me, Mike Messner, at teachermike72 at gmail.com. Our next show will be coming out about the first week of July. I'm going to be on vacation with my family in Hawaii for a week. And an old friend of the show, Deb Radwan, will be joining me to discuss Salute from the 1983 album of the same name. Until then, this is Mike Messner reminding you, run for the roses, but don't forget to stop and smell them. We'll see you next time. I live in the light of the bright silver moon I'll take you all sailing from midnight till noon I'll show you the sea of tranquility You can have any flavor you happen to see I live in the shade of a forest of Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.